This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers today. and jump Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, Kit Mocken here with you today. Hope you had a great week. Good to have your company on Countrywide on ABC Radio. Do you know those beautiful big white marama dogs that are bred to look after flocks of sheep and chickens? They even look after little penguins in some parts of Australia. You might have seen the movie about it. Well, there is a new kid on the block. You might be able to recognise who it is. Place your bets now. Also, when you're in the supermarket and you're taking a look at all the red meat, do you take any notice of the star rating on the front of the packages? You might have splurged on some five-star mints or maybe saved some money on some three-star chops. If you've ever wondered how they come up with the stars, you're in luck. What we're doing is using cuts that could be utilised for barbecuing and, and testing those and seeing what consumers think about them. You're going to go behind the scenes on some meat tasting. Also, the stork has visited the top end. Believe it or not, that is what baby crocodiles sound like when they're hatching out of their eggs. A little later, we're going to head to a croc farm in northern Australia. All that and more on Countrywide. From the top end to Tassie, Countrywide on ABC Radio. But first today, for the first time ever, workers on Australian farms will be guaranteed a minimum rate of pay when changes to the Horticulture Award come into place on April 28th. The Fair Work Commission set the deadline for major changes to the Horticulture Award earlier this week, having determined that in November, a minimum rate of pay should be set for workers paid a piece rate. National Rural Reporter Kath Sullivan has more. A piece rate is when a worker is paid according to their productivity. Essentially, the more fruit or veggies that are harvested, the more a worker is paid. Farm groups argued before the Fair Work Commission that the introduction of a minimum rate of pay would disincentivise workers and lead to the productive workers leaving the sector. But in its final decision, the Commission said that these assertions were speculative and unsupported by any evidence. It was also particularly scathing of one farm operator which had contested pay conditions. In response, the Commission said that that business's submission demonstrated a lack of awareness of the existing award obligations and, quote, flies in the face of its contention that large employers comply with their award obligations and do not cut corners. Yesterday's decision means that workers under the Horticulture Award must be paid a minimum $25.41 per hour. Workers can still be paid a piece rate, it's just that it must allow for the average worker to earn at least the equivalent of 15% above that minimum casual rate. National Secretary of the Australian Workers' Union, Daniel Walton, says it's a great result. And what that means for so many workers is for those on piece rates that if they work eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, they are absolutely guaranteed to earn the minimum rate for those hours worked. And for so many workers who have been ripped off 
who've not had their correct pay applied, who've been shafted countlessly, this is a fantastic victory and one that is well-deserved for so many hard workers in this industry. Okay, the Fair Work Commission said essentially six months from its initial determination was enough for the industry. Your union had been pushing for the changes to come in on the 1st of January. What do you think um, of the timeline that has been set out, the 28th of April? Well, I think it's a compromised position that the Fair Work Commission has found. We had hoped that this would come into effect sooner to be able to help clear up and guarantee those hours being paid properly for many, many workers. But at the end of the day, we will work with the decision. It's 28th of April now gives time for us to communicate to all of our members and to workers in the industry and for the employers to get their processes and procedures in place uh, to make sure that, you know, anyone working on piece rate arrangements, doesn't matter where you are in the country now, and they have to have their hours tracked and they have to make sure that those workers in the industry are going to get paid at least a minimum for the hours worked. Okay, and the Fair Work Commission actually sets out that the hours worked each day need to be um, recorded. Is that a significant change in itself? Yeah, what was happening before was that for a lot of peace workers, there was no actual record keeping around the hours worked. And so the idea being theoretically that there was meant to be a premium in place for a peace rate worker that they'd be incentivised and earning um, in excess. The evidence that we put forward and which was ultimately agreed by the Commission was that there is no actual justification for that claim being put forward by the employers, that in fact the evidence says to the contrary that workers are earning well below the award. And so what this decision now says is employees have to keep track of the hours worked and reconciled at least on a daily basis. There were propositions put forward by employer groups that it should be averaged out over a longer period of time, but on each day... Perhaps over a week or, in fact, the, the harvest period? Well, correct, yeah. I think there were even some suggestions that it's done over a month. Uh, but what we know is if a worker's working 10 hours on that day, it's recorded that it, what will happen from the 20th of April, they need to have it recorded that they work 10 hours for that day and eight hours for the next and 10 hours for the following and at the end of the pay cycle that they can reconcile to make sure that if they are still on piece rates, which they can still be, that they have at least earned the award. And for the farmers that want to incentivise workers to earn more, they can still do that. That is absolutely still in place. Just make sure that everyone is getting their minimum. National Secretary of the Australian Workers' Union, Daniel Walton, speaking there. And the National Farmers' Federation was not available for comment. Unsurprisingly, backpackers have welcomed the introduction of the minimum hourly wage. Cristobal Hedegal is from Chile and has been in Australia for three years. He now works as a manager at a Griffith Backpackers and told Olivia Calver that they previously did not send out people on piece rate jobs because the pay was unfair. When we did piece rate, it wasn't enough money, I think. It's the same way I met some people who work in doing like orange picking and they made per day like 30 or even less some once i met some people who were working in a in a cherry farm and they did like 20 bucks per day so 20 20 dollars per day so that's why as a hostel after that we decide to don't provide any kind of uh, peace rate job to everyone because me personally i think it's not it's not fair so would you be happy to see that now there's a minimum wage hourly for piece rate work? So they're paid around $25 an hour as a minimum now? 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's is much better than than before. Uh, I think this, this it should be the same for. I mean, there shouldn't be like piece rate jobs in farms, you know, because the job is already hard. The argument would be that they might not have as productive um, workers if they're not on piece rate. But what would sort yeah. of be the response to that? We can be very pr- productive if the if the wage is uh, is fair. You know what I mean? Maybe they were not productive because the the wage was not fair. If I go to a job that they are not paying what I think they have to pay, I'm not saying they have to pay a lot, but just the the, the fair wages, uh, we will try to do a better a good job. Do you think that in the future now there is a minimum wage for peace Ray that? You will be sort of recommending backpackers do look at that sort of work yeah, now? For sure. Christopher Hedegaard speaking to Olivia Carver. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. When you're buying meat at the supermarket, do you reach for the five-star meat? Or maybe you don't mind getting the three-star because it's a little bit cheaper. But do you ever wonder how it gets that rating? Well, it's actually determined by the Meat Standards Australia grading system, which was developed by getting more than one million people to test a wide range of different cuts of meat from various cattle and sheep breeds. And the system is forever being upgraded. This week, a team of researchers from the University of New England set up a taste testing station in Port Macquarie on the New South Wales mid-north coast when more than 300 people came along to rate different cuts of barbecue lamb. Kelly Johnson went along to check it out. If a consumer gets a bad eating experience, it takes them at least seven weeks to try that again. So if they get a piece of lamb that's terrible, they don't want to eat that for another six or seven weeks, and then that's a, that's a lost consumer to the industry. That's Dr Jared Lees from Meat Science at UNE. He's here in Port Macquarie to conduct eating quality research for Meat and Livestock Australia to get a better idea how to rate and price barbecue lamb. It's so important that we can, we can be as accurate as possible so that we can get this meat to be as consistent as possible in the box and market it accordingly so that the premiums with the premium, the better than every day is with the better than every day and it's at the right price point. We don't want to be selling good everyday meat at a premium price and giving consumers um, a poor outcome. We're surrounded by a couple of barbecues. You were having the meat prepared. Tell me what you're actually doing here to, I guess, differentiate the way that you're cooking it. Yeah, sure. So uh, this uh, particular cook method is one of, I want to say, four. One of four that we're testing. So we've, we've got um, we've got 155 lamb carcasses, and we broke those down into different cuts. Some of that's getting grilled. Some of it is getting stir-fried. Some of it's getting slow-cooked. And we've got uh, low and slow barbecue. And so what we're doing is using cuts that could be utilised for barbecuing and, and testing those and seeing what consumers think about them. And from here, I'm guessing the meat's taken up inside where you get 60 or so people through a night um, and they don't know what part of the animal or how it's being cooked. Is that correct? They've got to grade it from there? Yeah, they know they're, they're going to be eating barbecue. Um, so they know they're going to get low and slow smoked lamb. Uh, but they don't know what they're going to get and so essentially all the consumer is going to get is a little white plate about the size of a butter plate um, with about two or three bits of meat on it and they'll have a survey and on that survey it's going to have um, how much they like the tenderness how much they like the juiciness how much they like the flavor and how much overall they liked it Andrea Simpson is the sensory research manager with UNE and says it's crucial the team get a variation of people to taste test for more widespread results 
you don't want to look for one demographic, um, otherwise the data's not going to have the variation that we like. Um, so we're looking for yeah, a younger person from anywhere from the age of 18 through to 70 plus. So we're looking for a big spread, people that have just left school and just starting to get into the workforce, people that have sort of settled into their job, and then we want to see the people that have retired as well. So um, both male, female, uh, it doesn't matter what the gender is. And we're doing alternate, so odds and evens at each table. Therefore, the consumers are getting a variation of meat. We don't want consumers sitting near each other that are tasting something of similar. So they will all get something um, of varying quality throughout the tasting, but at that point in time, they also get seven samples of meat that have come from different animals and different muscles. So we're trying to get a variation so that we don't have consumers sitting around chatting with each other, discussing the sample. And so we want everybody's honest thoughts and honest opinions. We don't want a joint decision on our results. UNE's Sensory Research Manager, Andrea Simpson, finishing that report by Keely Johnson. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. Kit Mocken with you today, and it's fantastic to have you along on the program. Stories of the humble donkey being helpful stretch back to biblical times. But donkeys are in hot demand now as peacekeepers and guardians of livestock. As Joe Prendergast reports, prices are through the roof. They're regarded as an environmental pest in Australia's pastoral region. But donkeys are enjoying a burst of popularity with some livestock producers. They tell me that donkeys are very good for putting in with cows and bulls and breaking up fights. So that's, um, you know, some of the big operators are buying them for that. But there's a a real push um, to get them for, uh, they make great companion animals, but also stock protectors. Um, I've heard some reports and uh, stories about the farmers buying them and putting them out with, you know, their cattle and sheep and and they're very good at at, uh, keeping wild dogs and foxes and so forth away from the stock. Phil Padrizovic is a livestock agent based in WA, and he's been really surprised at some of the prices being paid lately for donkeys at the sale yards. All of a sudden, the last probably 18 months, we've seen a, a, a big jump in prices. Started off at around about six or $700 a donkey, and then couple of sales ago I think it reached as high as sort of two two and a half thousand dollars for uh, you know a good young uh, Jenny. Phil Petrizovich says about three years ago donkeys were worth roughly sixty dollars a head as pet meat. The guardian and companion animal market is limited and Phil is hoping that prices remain high enough to keep making it worthwhile for pastoralists to muster some donkeys and send them to the sale yards. Like all all livestock, they're cycles. So for a long time, uh, they were considered vermin. Pastoralists were, you know, were having them um, shot or, or exterminated. So there was just no donkeys coming down to the to the metro area. Suddenly, a load came in. The word got out. Ben Royce farms on the outskirts of Geraldton. He runs sheep, and he's sick of dogs coming onto his property at night and attacking his ewes and lambs. Last year we lost 70 lambs and 10 ewes and a lot of them, they weren't actually killed, they were mauled so we had to put them out of the misery ourselves and yeah, it's not a fun not a fun job. So it adds up over time so we um, looked at a few different options and donkeys seem to be the most reliable 
Uh, they don't need to be mused, shorn. They can look after themselves and they're quite friendly to humans as well. Ben Royce paid $3,000 for two female donkeys, but he doesn't think it'll take long for them to cover their costs by preventing sheep losses. So they'll join the flock of sheep and they'll literally live with them and they'll, be, they'll come in with the sheep during musing and shearing and then they'll go back out with them and they'll ultimately, ultimately be the protectors of the lambs and the ewes. So they'll chase the dog and stomp, stomp it and, yeah, scare it away or kill it. A couple of years ago, did you ever think you'd have some donkeys that you're introducing <laughs> to your sheep? I didn't know. I never thought I'd have donkeys or I didn't think I'd have dog problems in the middle of Geraldton either. But, yeah, it's one of the things we're having to deal with, so this is hopefully going to fix that. The two donkeys will go into a mob of 400 sheep and if they prove successful, Ben will look to invest in more. But donkeys aren't just popular for their protective instincts. Livestock agent Phil Petrizovic says the global donkey population is shrinking due to demand from China. It's called um, J.O. There's a belief that the skin has some medicinal powers. The donkey um, population worldwide has crashed, um, especially around sort of Africa and some of those and West African type countries. The Chinese population's down by over two thirds, so they just can't get enough um, donkey meat and, the, and particularly the skins. There's a lot of demand, and obviously, with these rangeland donkeys that Australia has, there seems to be quite a lot of uh, demand, but more so in the eastern states like uh, the Territory and in Queensland. Livestock agent Phil Putrizivich ending that report from Joe Prendergast. And you can read more of that story online. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. Kit Mocken here with you today. And it's a busy time of the year for crocodile farms in northern Australia as baby crocs begin to hatch from their eggs. Matt Brand went along to a farm near Darwin to see some of its first arrivals for 2022. All right, so my name's Peyton and I'm from Crocodilus Park. Um, so what we've got going on here, we've got our, one of our first arrivals, our second nest of the year. Um, so this is R2, it's from our river system out the back. Um, we've roughly got about 40 to about 45 crocodiles here at the moment. So they've just come out of the eggs yesterday and we've still got a couple coming out of the eggs now. Now, these ones here in front of us, yes, they've, they've literally just come out of the eggs. Can you tell us a little bit about the, is it a tooth on the nose? Yeah, so they've got a little sharp point on the nose. It's, yeah, like a little tooth and that's what they use to break through the eggs because eggs are quite hard and these guys are quite small. They don't have a lot of power. So that tooth is very, very sharp. So we do have to be very careful if we are hatching these guys because we can cut ourselves on that little tooth because it's extremely sharp. And as for the other teeth, the real teeth, how sharp are they? Oh, they're like little needles at the moment. Um, But thankfully they don't have a lot of jaw power. So if they do bite you, it doesn't really hurt. And so, I mean, this is an exciting time for croc farms, little babies coming out of their eggs. What sort of season is it like this year? Uh, it's a pretty, pretty average season. It's not a lot of eggs. It's not um, really bad eggs or anything like that. It's pretty consistent. Um, nothing really special to write home about. It's just pretty average year. An average wet season and hence an average crocodile hatching season. Exactly. These little ones in front of us, tell us their story from here on. Right, so they got laid by a little girl that we call Einstein out in our river system and she's a pretty cheeky girl and these guys are pretty cheeky babies climbing all over the place. 
Um, so Einstein was actually our second female to lay this year, and that was out on our, our man-made river system. Uh, so she laid right on a little peninsula, so we had to have about four people with guarding oars protecting our one-person nesting. Einstein must be a clever croc, surely. Oh, she is very clever. She's a very cheeky girl. She sits behind our motors on the boat, and because the vibrations of the motors mask her vibrations, no other crocodile knows she's there. So she follows around the whole river, sneaking into all the other girls' territories. These crocs are currently in a, in a sink in front of us, but uh, where to next for them? Uh, so these guys pretty soon, so we'll go through processing them and grade them, and then these guys are off to a hatchery down the back uh, until they get big, uh, really big, and then we'll go from there. And of course the skins are the main game. At this early stage of life, can you look at any of these and go, oh, oh, that one could be worth a few dollars in years to come? Yeah, so that's actually determined by the, um, how much yolk they've absorbed yet. So you can see we've got a little scale down there that tells you if they've absorbed a lot of yolk or not. And usually the first two, the normal um, ones and all that, they've absorbed a lot of yolk, um, and that means they're going to pr probably be A-grade skin, so a Louis Vuitton handbag. Wow. And that, a lot of that can be determined in the, in the first few moments of life? Yeah, it can, pretty much straight away. Wow. So that's why it's very important that we do get our um, nest temperatures right and we have our incubator right and everything like that, because all that affects how much, how, um, when they're born, how much of the yolk they're going to soak in and how good of hatchling and skin they're going to be. Now, just finally, this is the first time I've met you at Crocodilus Park, Payton. Uh, in previous times I've been here, it seems everyone's got a story of, of a near miss or maybe copying a, a nip. What's your story? Uh, well, I've got a bit too many. Um, <laughs> uh, one of my very close calls when we were nest collecting um, and I had, we had Culpinia pop up and he came popped up, came right back down. And for our audience, this is one of the biggest crocs on the park. The biggest crocodile we have here. So he popped himself up, then went straight back down, and then charged straight out of the water trying to kill us all. So luckily we had a really good fella on, and he was keeping an eye on us, and he got us all safely back in the boat. How was the heart? Um, it was about three feet out of my chest. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing uh, this moment with our audience today. The little baby crocs are out and about. No worries. Have a good one. Peyton Crosser from Crocodilius Park near Darwin. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide, the politics of food and farming. While many tourists might know Tasmania for its specialty cheeses and salmon, there's another crop that has made the state famous across the world. Did you know that Tassie supplies around half the global market for poppies? The flowers provide the raw narcotic material needed to manufacture opioid painkillers. But the industry has had a rough few years. So what does the future look like for Australia's own pioneer of the poppy? In a golden paddock in Tasmania's northern Midlands, the first poppy harvest of the season is underway. Oh, I'm feeling good. Uh, this was an early sign paddock uh, back in, of all things, late June, early, early July. That's Roderick O'Connor. His family has been growing poppies for 20 years. We're still getting contracts and we'll continue to do so. We're actually looking at putting another pivot on next year onto the property and that's already being temporarily earmarked for poppies. So. Roderick is a big fan of poppies but he has seen the industry transform over the past decade. I think we've got better at growing the crops 
the pricing's always been a bit of an issue because it has come off a little bit, but that's international demand. The cost to put poppy crops in nowadays have, have skyrocketed in the last two years, cost of irrigation, uh, cost of inputs. So um, yeah, I think all the industry, including the growers are under pressure. So we just have to hope that we can move forward next year. Tasmania was a pioneer of the poppy and became a world leader in painkiller production. It produces around half the global market of the raw material needed to manufacture opioid-based pharmaceuticals. But today, the land dedicated to poppies and the number of growers is less than a third of what it was a decade ago. There's been some challenges come into the industry. Um, I mean, the market's been, and market remains quite volatile. That's Keith Rice. He's the president of Poppy Growers Tasmania. It's just eased a little bit at the moment, and we're seeing that in this year's crop and in last year's crop. Uh, but all, all indicators are that we're in a good and sound, stable position. A global oversupply of poppies, cuts to elective surgery due to COVID and a crackdown on painkiller prescriptions in the wake of the US opioid crisis have all damaged demand. But Mr Rice says the industry is still in a strong position and the reduced growing area has been offset by increased productivity. Oh, it's still a great Tasmanian success story. Uh, but, you know, it, it's been going now for 50 plus years. Uh, and, I, and most people measure it on hectares. Well, that's not the measure we use at the moment. It had its greatest hectares in 2012, 2013, when we had 30,000 hectares. But now, uh, you know, we've been sitting around 10 to 12,000. It's just that there's been some stockpile around the world. Uh, we haven't lost a lot of market share, uh, if but any at all, uh, and it's still around about 50% of the world market. Uh, so when we look at it across the board, it's in a very good and a sound position, and uh, we're hoping that we'll see uh, market demand will increase somewhat over the next couple of years. Because we're, we're dealing with COVID, uh, which has uh, had an impact at electric, uh, uh, elective surgery. Hopefully we've seen the back end of the very severe COVID, and uh, by that I mean we're hoping that people that need urgent surgery and knees, legs, arms, shoulders, that pain management requires our product. Amid these challenging conditions, one of Australia's big poppy processors, Sun Farmer, was forced to slash production in April. Then in December, another processor, Palafarma, went into voluntary administration. The other major player, Extract Has Bioscience, made big cuts a few years ago. But things are different this year. So our company's come through a period of consolidation. That's Field Officer Noel Bevan. We had major restructure at our uh, Westbury Works. We're uh, um, a much leaner machine than we were. Uh, we had to cut a lot of cost from the business to remain competitive and uh, we believe we've done that. So uh, we've uh, increased our area, crop area this year from uh, around 3,000 hectares last year to 5,000 this year and uh, we've got some very good crops in the ground waiting to be harvested and uh, we're very pleased with what uh, we appear to have ready to come into the factory. We see the future is very bright. We've got uh, uh, fantastic potential there in our, our plant and our people at Westbury. Uh, we've done a lot of work in the marketing uh, field and uh, we believe we're in a good position to be growing a uh, significant area of the crop in the state.
While it has been a tough decade, poppy growers remain confident that demand will increase once stockpiles are exhausted, the pandemic subsides and elective surgery resumes. And while farmers like Roderick O'Connor know that prices are not what they used to be, he would hate to see Tasmania lose its poppy industry. Uh, I think it'd be great loss to the state and to for employment and for growers and returns uh, if we lose it. And it's a really good part for our uh, crop rotation. I'd be really disappointed. Uh, it's really, but we live in uncertain times. So much is uncertain in this game in the last couple of years. Uh, there are so many, as I said, things outside our influence that we really don't know and have never seen before that just sort of throw you off course for a little bit. And then you, hopefully we can all serve it. Whenever everything's sort of settled down, then we can, uh, we look forward to the future, more stable future. Poppy farmer Roderick O'Connor ending that report from Lachlan Bennett. That's all we have time for today on Countrywide. It's been great having you along. For more on any of the stories you've heard in this episode and to listen to the Countrywide podcast, just head along to the ABC Rural website. I'm Kit Mocken. Thanks for your company. I'll catch you again soon.